Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. This is Marianne Russo. I'd like to acknowledge Pierrette, Elise, Jane, and Chuck, my co-moderators. I am thrilled to have Dr. Ross Green as my guest tonight. Dr. Green is Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the author of The Explosive Child and Lost at School. His research has been funded by the U.S. Department of Education, National Institute on Drug Abuse, and he just is his work has been incredible, but I think even more impressive is that he has really become a hero for these struggling kids and their parents. Um, he, he has become one of the most loved and respected men in the field, so we are thrilled. Uh, Dr. Green, welcome back. Thanks, and I'm thrilled to hear myself characterized that way. Well, you know, you really have become a hero, and that's not just coming from me. As I said, you know, Tweet Chat has been up all day, and, um, you know, really the parents are calling you a hero. I mean, what you've done is incredible. I mean, your first book, The Explosive Child, was just that. It was explosive. I mean, it took parenting the challenging child into, you know, a whole new world of thinking. And, you know, it became known as the Bible to these parents who had heard for so many years that, um, you know, they had to set the rules and they had to be in charge, and, you know, they knew it wasn't working. And, you know, just when we thought you couldn't get any better, you came out with your second book, Lost at School, which is just incredible. So I would like to start off with um, talking about the whole concept of um, the collaborative problem solving. And, you know, it is brilliant. I've used it myself, and I can tell you it is brilliant and it works. And, um, you know, then we'll go into the three plans, and we'll finish with um, Lost at School, which is, you know, helping the educators um, understand these kids. So I'd like to start off with, you know, you say kids do well if they can. So what are some of the reasons that these kids do not do well? Well, the main reason they don't do well is that they're lacking the skills to do well. And that's been an important premise of my work uh, from the get-go. Uh, you know, the soundbite these days is why are challenging kids challenging because they're lacking the skills not to be challenging. And, you know, I've been the beneficiary of uh, many years of research that others have done showing us that what distinguishes challenging kids from the not-so-challenging variety of kid is that it's the challenging ones who are lacking lots of important cognitive skills. So the general category in which that distinguishes challenging kids from others is skills. But within skills, the research tells us that there are some pretty specific domains that lots of parents of challenging kids are pretty familiar with at this point, executive skills, language processing and communication skills, skills related to managing one's emotions, skills related to being flexible and adaptable, and skills related to interacting with people socially. Those are the five categories that I usually refer to when I'm talking about the skills kids are lacking. And of course, we can get even more specific than that if we wanted to, but um, I don't know if we want to. Well, you know, I like that, you know, in, in the book you really do not use diagnoses or labels, but instead you use the, the symptoms or behaviors, you know, the presentations of these kids. And, you know, the labels really don't don't help. And, you know, I found that behind every behavior is a reason. So, you know, like you've, you've identified in the book, once you identify the reason, you know, whether it's sensory or skill deficits or whatever, you know, that's when you can really start doing the work. So, you know, most parents know the consequences and reward, rewards don't work 
on these challenging and, you know, hard-to-manage kids. So why don't we start off with that? Why is it that consequences don't work for these kids, and is it just for these kids? Well, you know, I think it depends a little bit on your definition of work. Some folks do get a quick burst of uh, improvement when they're using incentives, uh, consequences to try to shape a kid's behavior. The problem is, and the research tells us this as well, is that in many instances the uh, effects of a reward and punishment program don't last very long, um, and they often don't last uh, once you've removed the reward and punishment program. So I, I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they don't work, but I guess my attitude is I'm looking for change and improvement that is durable. I'm not looking for quick, not durable bursts. And I think that the main issue is that, um, you know, I think about challenging kids in terms of the skills that they're lacking and in terms of the unsolved problems. Some people call them antecedents. Some people call them triggers. I call them unsolved problems. But the conditions that are setting in motion, they're challenging episodes. And the problem is that a reward and punishment program doesn't, generally speaking, teach these kids the type of skills that they're lacking and doesn't help us durably solve the problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion their challenging episodes, whether that unsolved problem is teeth brushing or amount of time being spent in front of a screen or getting ready for bed at night or getting ready for school in the morning or completing homework or doing chores. You know, the interesting thing is challenging kids, the, the things that they're struggling with, aren't that much different than the things regular old kids struggle with. It's that challenging kids don't have the skills to handle the frustration that comes up when those unsolved problems pop up for them. Um, so I think of the, the raw material of helping a child with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges is first, let's figure out what skills this kid is lacking so that we have the right lenses on because, let's face it, there are lots of other things we could be saying about him that besides that he's lacking skills, we could be saying that he's attention-seeking. I don't find that to be terribly accurate or helpful. Uh, manipulative, coercive, unmotivated, limit-testing. Um, those are all the things that we say about challenging kids that are uninformative, unhelpful, counterproductive. I find that it is much more productive when we try to figure out the very specific skills that a child is lacking. That's very informative and the very specific unsolved problems that need to be solved so that the child isn't exhibiting challenging behavior over them anymore. Right. And, you know, it, it, if they could, they would. I mean, that's how I feel. So, you know, I don't think any of these kids want to fail or struggle. And the collaborative problem solving really is a great technique for parents and educators to learn. So what is collaborative problem solving, and how is it a joint effort between the child and the parent or the child and the, the teacher? Well, the model itself consists of two basic components. Um, the first is um, helping people understand uh, who challenging kids are and why they're challenging, and that's basically lagging skills and unsolved problems. The second part of collaborative problem solving is where we get into what I call plans A, B, and C, which are the three ways to approach an unsolved problem with a challenging kid. One of those two ways I don't recommend, even though that way is the one that is most commonly applied, and that one's called Plan A. Plan A is when you are trying to solve a problem unilaterally, usually through imposition of adult will, usually with adult-imposed consequences attached. And my experience is that Plan A, when applied to a challenging kid, greatly heightens the likelihood of a challenging episode. 
So people want to know why is that? Because plan A, having will imposed upon you with adult imposed consequences attached, demands skills of challenging kids that they don't have. Skills like flexibility and adaptability and frustration tolerance and problem solving. And if you demand skills of a kid who and the kid is lacking those skills, then you'll greatly heighten the likelihood that he's going to exhibit challenging behavior. So I spend a good part of my waking moments um, helping people, adult caregivers, understand that plan A is frequently not the best way to go with a behaviorally challenging kid. Uh, plan C is when you're dropping an expectation, at least for now, and that's basically an act of prioritizing, not an act of giving in. Uh, the prioritizing part is important because behaviorally challenging kids frequently have many unsolved problems, and we're not going to be able to solve them all at once. We're going to be able to work with the child on two or three at a time. The rest we're not going to be able to work on right now because if we try to work on everything, we'll solve nothing. And then the plan B is where instead of using plan A to solve a problem, we're using, instead of solving problems unilaterally, we're solving problems collaboratively by doing collaborative problem solving. Um, collaborative problem solving involves the kid in the solution. Collaborative problem solving ensures that we understand where the kid is coming from on whatever unsolved problem we're working on right now, what his concern or perspective is on that unsolved problem. Collaborative problem solving helps the kid take our concerns into account, and collaborative problem solving helps child and adult collaborate and work together on solutions that are going to address each other's concerns. What I spend most of my waking moments teaching people how to do is plan B, collaborative problem solving. And it, it does work. You know, I think some parents, um, and, and I think even educators as well, feel that they're giving up their control, that they're the adult, when actually they're gaining they're gaining it because, you know, they're teaching these kids the skills that they need to be independent and to be part of the solution. So your program is incredible for teaching these kids to get in touch with their concerns because I think that's what they don't even know what their concerns or their needs are or they know it and they're not communicating it well. So, you know, if they learn to understand themselves and, you know, how to attain these skills so that they can, you know, collaborate in an appropriate way, which is really the goal. Yeah, so, I um, Go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. Go ahead. I don't think that adults demonstrate that they are in control when time after time they set in motion challenging episodes by imposing their will, uh, imposing consequences, and having nothing to show for it the next day except a hole in the wall, a bruise in their body, and a damaged relationship with their child. That's That's not demonstrating that one is in control. I mean, but... Um, yes, collaborative problem solving is very effective. The hardest part about doing collaborative problem solving is that it is very hard to do, especially since we adults often haven't had a whole lot of practice at collaborating on solving problems, and many adults never thought it even plausible that one would or should collaborate with a kid on solving problems. But um, I think we demonstrate that we are in control when we can look back at three to six months of solved problems. I think we're demonstrating that we were in control when we look back at three to six months of significantly reduced challenging episodes because of all those problems that we solved. Uh, if you want to be in control, I think collaborative problem solving is the way to go. 
Absolutely. You know, and you said that it's hard. I, I, you know, I found that initially it was hard. But um, that was very short term because, you know, once there was that mutual understanding that the child feels that they're going to be heard and that they're going to be able to express, you know, what you know what's blocking them and what they're struggling with, it really becomes very easy because you build this, you know, relationship built on respect. Um, you know, I think setting attainable, attainable goals is important also because I think sometimes parents, you know, set the goals that are very unrealistic for these kids that for whatever reason, you know, they, they can't reach them. Well, and I think that there's no question about it. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And then all I would say is that Plan B is harder for some folks than others because some adults take to it more naturally than others. And the truth is many kids take to Plan B more easily than others. Plan B tends to be a little bit harder when people are having more difficulty controlling their emotions in the midst of it. Plan B is definitely harder when you are doing it and trying to modify it for a child who doesn't have the language processing or communication skills to participate in the usual manner in Plan B. It can still be done with uh, kids who are lacking uh, language processing communication skills, but it does require some adjustments. So I think that it just comes more naturally to some folks than others and that it's easier for some kids to engage in it than others. Quite frankly, some kids, some of the ones that are hardest to do Plan B with, are the ones that um, don't really trust adults anymore, don't really feel that they're going to be heard, um, feel that the Plan A boom is going to be lowered on them at some point during the process because that's what history has taught them. And some of those kids are kind of skeptical about Plan B and kind of reluctant to participate in it until it becomes apparent to them that they really are on a different playing field now. Right. Well, you know, why don't you go into a little more detail about Plan B? I know that, you know, you, we're restricted a little with time, but, you know, Plan B is really the core of it. And, you know, why is it the most vital part? Well, because Plan B is where you are actually solving problems with the child that are setting in motion uh, challenging episodes. Uh, if those problems don't get solved, then we really don't have any reason to believe that the challenging episodes are going to end. As I always say, the goal of treatment in collaborative problem solving is to move, first to identify in very specific terms the unsolved problems that are setting in motion challenging episodes, and then to move those problems from the unsolved pile where they're setting in motion challenging episodes to the solved pile where they don't. Solved, pro solved problems don't set in motion challenging episodes. Only unsolved problems do. So just a little bit more detail. The, the Plan B, well, the first important point about Plan B and perhaps the most important point about Plan B is that this is something that we are doing proactively as often as possible, rather than in the heat of the moment. Uh, when, we, when we talk about the ingredients of Plan B, it becomes crystal clear that these are ingredients that are much more productively applied when we are implementing them proactively, rather than reactively when it's really hot and when we're rushed for time. That's just not the ideal circumstances for solving a problem with a kid. But the first step in doing Plan B is to download from the Lives in the Balance website, which is www.livesinthebalance.org, uh, in the paperwork section, what you want to do is download the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems so that you really know what unsolved problems it is that you want to be working on. And then you want to download a copy of the Plan B flowchart, 
which helps people decide, well, which unsolved problems do I want to be working on right now? And I want to track them over time to make sure that I see them through to a successful resolution. So the first thing we want to do is identify unsolved problems. The next thing we want to do is decide which of those we're working on right now. And the next thing we want to do is take each of those unsolved problems and try to solve them proactively using Plan B. Beyond that, Plan B consists of three steps or ingredients. The first I've always called the empathy step. The second I've always called the define the problem step. And the third is called the invitation. But these days, I prefer talking about the ingredients rather than the steps themselves, the names of the steps. Um, the ingredient of the empathy step is information gathering and understanding. Gathering information about and understanding the child's concern or perspective on the unsolved problem we're talking with him about, presumably proactively, presumably because it's a high-priority problem right now. Why is that important? Because if we don't understand the child's concern or perspective on this unsolved problem, and if we don't ensure that the concern or perspective is addressed, then this unsolved problem will remain unsolved. Second step, if you find the problem step, the ingredient is this is where the adult is getting their concern or perspective on the table about the same unsolved problem. Uh, the hard part about the empathy step, I should add, is that often when we're asking kids about their concern or perspective, um, the information doesn't come so readily. And I describe in the, in, in the Lost at School and the Explosive Child how we need to sometimes gather more information from the child, something I call drilling for information, and that's very hard. But there's actually video on the Lives in the Balance website showing people what drilling should look like. So I'm doing as much as I can to put out there any resources I can to help make the hard parts of Plan B easier for people. The hard part about the define the problem step is that adults often don't know what their concerns are. Adults often have a much right. better sense about what solution they're shooting for than they do what their own concern is, but they've got to get their own concern on the table too. And then the third ingredient, the, the step is called the invitation, but the ingredient is brainstorming. This is where adult and child, having now gotten the concerns of both parties entered into consideration in those first two ingredients of Plan B, are brainstorming solutions, but a certain, but a, what I call a highly specialized type of solution, solutions that are going to address the concerns of both parties, meaning that the solution is mutually satisfactory, and solutions that both parties can actually perform meaning the solution has to be realistic. And there, in a nutshell, though a slightly long-winded nutshell, are the three ingredients of Plan B. And I really encourage everyone to, you know, go to the website and purchase the book. We've been um, posting the website all day, and people are loving it. Great. Um, because it, oh, it's so informative, and the videos, I mean, it's just fantastic. You know, going back to being proactive, you know, sometimes I just shake my head because, you know, I've been telling people about the explosive child and lost at school, I mean, since they came out because, you know, I, I've lived it and I've seen how they work. And, you know, it makes me laugh because parents will say, well, being proactive is so exhausting. And I say, and calming a raging child is not exhausting? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's like pick your exhaustion. But, but I guess here's right. my attitude. You can be exhausted trying to respond in the heat of the moment and have nothing to show for your exhaustion three to six months later. You're just as exhausted. 
Or you can be proactive, be exhausted, get a lot of proactive plan B under your belt, get a lot of problems solved, and still be exhausted because parenting is exhausting, and especially if you have a child with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. But I think we're going to be we're going to have more to show for our exhaustion three to six months from now when we're being proactive than we are when we're being emergent. And what I think really comes out of using this is trust. And I think once the child develops the trust in the parent or, you know, be it a teacher, everything changes. The whole dynamics changes. When they know that when they're struggling, when they're stressed out, when they're having a problem that is going to be dealt with and they're going to be heard, it, it just changes everything. And, you know, Chuck Wally is one of the moderators on our show, and he's, uh, you know, a smart guy. He's always telling the parents, you know, the parents sometimes are the ones that need to be flexible, and, you know, they need to make the changes to make the real changes in the child. And when when you learn to adopt this collaborative problem solving and you make those changes in yourself, it, it's just unbelievable, the changes in the child in school and everything else. And that's where we're headed to um, the school. Um you know, the cover of your book states school discipline is broken, and I agree. I mean, I think great strides are being made. And, you know, tonight is not just for the parents. It's for the educators and school administrators as well, and we have a lot of them listening tonight because I've invited them to um, join our chat and to listen. So, you know, school and education issues are huge stressors for these kids. So how does Lost at School, your second book, address this issue? Well, it describes what collaborative problem solving would look like in a school. And one of the things I like best about Lost at School is that about 50% of the book is a running story. With all of the dialogue and all of the stereotypical players who are in schools, um, from leaders to teachers to, you know, phys ed teachers and secretaries, and it really shows through the uh, running story, um, I think it really brings to life how hard it is to change school discipline programs, how how, how kids are frequently treated in schools, how hard it is to begin doing something new for people who've been doing things a certain way for a very long time. Um, beyond, and, and so that's really my that, that's one of the my favorite parts of the book, and something that people have told me really kept them riveted and, and made it such an accessible read, which is always gratifying to hear. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, um, Lost at School represents a very current rendition of the collaborative problem solving approach, especially if people buy the second edition, the soft cover, in the same way that the fourth edition of the Explosive Child, which just came out uh, last year. Is a very is the most current rendition of the collaborative problem solving approach, and the model has continued evolving over time. And those two uh, current books represent the most recent rendition of the model. But uh, cha- transforming school discipline is really hard, and, and schools are complicated, political places. Teachers right. have teachers and school leaders have all kinds of demands being placed upon them. It's almost like we think our Schools should be all things to all people, and regrettably, uh, kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges often get lost in that shuffle because people are so busy and because we're so focused on high-stakes testing and all of the current changes that are taking place in education. Lost at School basically says, look, there's a meaningful percentage of kids in our building we're going to lose. This is why I called it Lost at School. 
I call them frequent flyers in the school discipline program. And my attitude is the reason they're frequent flyers is because the school discipline program isn't working. If the school discipline program was working, they wouldn't be flying into it frequently. And those right. are the kids who we really need to change things for because the rest of the kids are going to do okay, almost irrespective of what our school discipline program looks like. It's the ones I worry about who clearly are not benefiting from all of those suspensions and all of those detentions and all of that punishment that we continue doling out. So Lost at School is not only a book that says, here's what collaborative problem solving looks like in a building. It's a call to action. And I happen to be sitting in Guelph, Ontario tonight uh, and spoke all day to um, many uh, 500 educators who came from um, many, many different parts close to Guelph, Ontario, which is um, west of Toronto, um, to hear about collaborative problem solving. Many of them have read Lost at School and have been trying to implement the model. Tomorrow we're going to strategize for how to make sure that this happens in uh, some of the local school systems. What I find is that many educators are crystal clear on the fact that school discipline as it is presently configured isn't working for many kids. They're, they're, a lot of them are very eager to learn more about challenging kids. A lot of them want to know what they could be doing instead. And Lost at School is a very good uh, guide for what things could look like and how we could do things differently. Right. Well, you know, differentiating instruction is a you know very popular term right now, I'm sure as you know. And you know, it, it truly is an individualized education plan, and you know, it's working. So it's a differenti differentiating discipline that you know the schools really have to find a way to do and I, I you know I don't know how they can do that I mean how can a school balance using excuse me collaborative problem solving techniques and still keep the conformity in rules well rule, rules and expectations is one thing that that's uh, it, it's in many schools where collaborative problem solving is implemented the rules don't really change I, I mean I prefer calling them expectations rather than rules because just mm -hmm. at a you know at a more nuanced level rules usually lead us to plan a when they're broken but when an expectation is not being met um, now we have three options a B and C but mm -hmm. um I think that the um Biggest issues in schools are not related to the fact that they're going to have to abandon rules and expectations if they're implementing collaborative problem solving, because they're not. You have to have expectations, uh, because it's unmet expectations that set in motion plan B. So it's hard to have unmet expectations if you don't have expectations in the first place. The hardest part in schools, believe it or not, isn't even helping people get good at plan B, because that part's hard too. The hardest part is creating mechanisms for communication, mechanisms for people who are in first period, second period, third period to be communicating with each other, to make sure that they're on the same page, to make sure that they're all wearing the right lenses, to make sure that we are doing 99.9% .9 of this proactively rather than emergently. Most school discipline occurs either in the heat of the moment of a challenging episode or immediately thereafter, and that's the worst possible timing. So the hard parts are helping us become proactive rather than reactive and making sure that our mechanisms for communication are solid. Otherwise, we are at risk for a form of intervention that I call winging it. Winging it is when every adult who interacts with the kid is doing what they think is best, because there's been no attempt to make sure that we're all wearing shared lenses, no attempt to coordinate the effort, 
no attempt to make this as proactive as possible. I find that it's the organizational effort that is the hardest, and not just in schools, in all facilities where challenging kids end up, inpatient units, residential facilities, therapeutic group homes, prisons. Yes, getting good at Plan B is hard. Making sure that we've organized the effort well so that we've got the structures in place to support it, much harder. Right. But and, doable. you know, that's where a lot of these children that, you know, are not being heard do wind up, unfortunately. And, um, you know, that actually was one of the questions that we um, were asked on the tweet chat was how how can this plan work if you have, in, in his case, he was saying, um, you know, a wife that isn't on the same page about this type of parenting. And, you know, that would go the same for what if, you know, a parent is implementing this at home, but the school isn't implementing this. Is there a way to get around this without complete cooperation? Well, I don't um, – I'm not one for accepting that someone is not on board. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to get somebody on board. And getting somebody on board – I find that often when I'm hearing that somebody's not on board, it's because – the effort at getting them on board started with talking with them about Plan B instead of talking with them about a child who's lacking skills and helping them understand that the child is lacking skills and helping them understand that it's unsolved problems that are byproducts of those lagging skills. I find that when we start explaining collaborative problem solving to people by starting with Plan B, it doesn't get the job done. The way to get the job done is by helping Every adult who interacts with the child appreciate the fact this is lagging skills, not lagging motivation. Therefore, motivational strategies are not what this kid needs from us. He needs us to be helping him solve problems that are setting in motion his challenging episodes and teaching him the skills that he's lacking. Then, Plan B makes a great deal of sense. So, lots of times that I enter into situations where I'm told, that a significant other or a key adult in the kid's life um, isn't on board yet, um, I'm not taking that laying down. I'm going to do whatever I can to get that adult on board. Having said that, every once in a while, there's an adult who we can't get on board. And then I switch into my next mode, which is if I have an adult who I can't get on board, at least I want some adults on board. And if I can help the adult who's not on board, at least not do damage, not do harm, be a neutral entity, even if they're not doing collaborative problem solving, as long as they're not messing things up, I'll take it, as long as some right. adults in the kid's life are doing Plan B. Right. And, you know, it, I, I, a lot of parents want to know, you know, how do they educate the um, educators and the administrators. Now, I know you spend a great deal of time going into the schools, and, um, you know, I, I think that they are starting to realize that the, the way that it's been going is not working. And um, zero tolerance really does more harm than good. So, um, you know, one of my questions was, can the collaborative problem solving be written into an IEP in any way? Absolutely. And in a few weeks, I'll be posting a sample IEP Beautiful. on the Lives in the Balance website showing what a uh, collaborative problem-solving-based IEP would look like. Bottom line is I, the, the, the heart of an IEP is listing goals and talking about how those goals are going to be achieved. Well, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems in listing 
the skills that a challenging kid is lacking and the unsolved problems that need to be solved so the child continues to move forward. Uh, but uh, having people engage in a discussion using the LSIP and identifying lagging skills and unsolved problems, in my opinion, writes the IEP for us. So instead of having goals that many people would acknowledge don't really mean a whole lot, the goals instead become the skills the kid is lacking and the problems that need to be solved. And, of course, the intervention part is easy, plan B. But I'll be posting one on the Lives in the Balance website as soon as I can get around to it. That's fantastic because, you know, that's really what's needed. And, you know, I in no, you know, no way um, am trying to say that, you know, the teachers aren't trying to do the best that they can. I mean, they have their hands full with classes with sometimes 30 children in it and, you know, several that have um, challenging behavior. It is very difficult. So, um, you know, I'm glad you do what you do by going around to the schools and, you know, showing him this, showing them your um, your program. You know, transitioning, you know, or unattained skills are usually the triggers for a lot of these kids. So do you have any quick tips about, you know, what you could do to ease these troubling times for the kids? Uh, um, I don't quite understand what you're asking. Say in a home situation or a school situation, when they need to transition, when they need to, you know, stop what they're doing or, you know, stop and have dinner or turn off their video game, oftentimes Uh is when we see a lot of the rages and the outbursts. Yes, got it. So you're you're saying that in many instances those outbursts are occurring during transitions, yes? Yes. So well, uh, what know, I do is I treat each diffi- each transition as an unsolved problem. And I try to solve them one at a time. So if a kid is having difficulty turning off the TV to go to bed or turning off the TV to go do homework, then I'm not working on transitions in general, I'm working on unsolved problems that are specific to those transitions. So I'm working on the unsolved problem of turning off the TV to go to bed or um, turning off the TV to go do homework or getting ready for school in the morning. You, You can't really work on transitions in general. It's not specific enough. You can work on the unsolved problems that are byproducts of that lagging skill much more readily. I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm sure a lot of people are curious. What does the canoe symbolize in collaborative problem solving? I'm glad you asked. Um, on the Lives in the Balance website, there's actually now a link that explains it. Um, uh, some people love the canoe. And I've also run into people who can't stand the canoe. I personally love the canoe. I think it uh, is the kind of uh, down-to-earth, non-glitzy, not-slick feel that I think I want lives in the balance to have and that I also think is kind of embodies life with a challenging kid. It can get messy. But a canoe involves, if you have two people in a canoe and they both have paddles, then you need them both working together. Um, to make this, otherwise you're going to go in circles if they are uh, paddling in completely different directions and in a way that's not coordinated. And so that's symbolic of collaborative problem solving where two people are working together. And it's also symbolic of the fact that often adults, when a kid is having challenges that are difficult for them, adults are inclined to take control of the canoe and paddle on their own. But Challenging kids don't take particularly well to that, and sometimes you start taking control of the canoe, 
the challenging kid is going to exhibit behaviors that are going to cause that canoe to tip. So I love the symbol of the canoe for what can happen if we don't work together, and I love the symbol of the canoe for how nicely we can move forward, even in treacherous waters, when we're working together. It's not always smooth, but working together sure beats the pants off of working at cross purposes. That's the symbol of the canoe. Well, I love the canoe. I Thank it you. Great. It's good to hear that. I'm I'm I'm, I'm collecting <laughs> I really votes. And I, I had read that on the website, and I loved it. That's why I wanted to ask you. Got it. Um, Got you know, it. we we spoke before about how you're not one to get hung up on labels and diagnoses. Yes. Uh, but there are a lot of upcoming changes to the DSM-5. Yes. Or possible upcoming changes. So, you know, how do you feel about that? I mean, I really, you know, feel that the addition of, say, you know, temper dysphoric dysregulation, that a lot of these have such a negative connotation for these kids. Well, I think it's hard to find, I don't know if I can come up with one, a diagnosis that has a positive connotation because kids are kids are being diagnosed not because of the great things that they're doing but because of the things that they're doing that, that are causing them to look bad. But, um, you know, the longer I'm in this business, you know, when I was in graduate school, I had to learn my diagnoses, and um, early on in my career, I used them. Um, but I have moved further and further away from them because I think diag- – and, and there are a potential positive to diagnoses, so I don't want to, you know, diminish no, absolutely. The, the, the potential positives. I think that mm-hmm. – but, but I think that, that what the positives are in some respects are kind of a shame. Um, you know, it's positive that uh, a diagnosis can legitimize a parent's belief that there is something different about their child, but – isn't it a shame that we need a diagnosis to legitimize that belief? A, a diagnosis can help a kid access special services that he needs at school, but isn't it a shame that a kid needs a diagnosis to access the services we know he needs at school? A diagnosis can help parents know that there is a support group that is um, comprised of other parents and other people whose children are exhibiting the same behaviors as theirs is, but... Um, You know, I don't know if we really need a diagnosis to accomplish that mission either. And, of course, diagnoses can help mental health professionals get reimbursed for their services. Diagnoses can help um, researchers pretend that the population they're studying is much more homogeneous than it really is. Now the downside, uh, and I think a lot of the upside is a shame that it has to be that way. Downside, diagnoses pathologize the kid when what collaborative problem solving helps us understand is that it takes two to tango. Uh, diagnoses um, make it sound like the problem resides within the kid, make it sound like it's the kid who needs to be fixed. Diagnoses distract people by causing them to focus on the kid's behavior rather than on the skills he's lacking. And among my biggest complaints about diagnoses is that they scare potential helpers away. Helpers who might be very well equipped to help a child solve problems that are causing his challenging episodes, but who are petrified because they feel that they don't know enough about a particular diagnosis to help a kid. I've been in this business long enough to, number one, not be petrified of any diagnosis and to strongly encourage others not to be petrified. I hate to see people scared away by a diagnosis. So my experience is that diagnoses have far more downside than upside. I think it is far more humane far more accurate, far more compassionate, and far more productive. If we have to categorize kids, and I really don't think that we have to, but if we have to, 
better to categorize them by lagging skills so that we really understand what's getting in their way than by diagnoses, which mostly tell us about the behaviors that the kid is exhibiting that we don't like. Well, audience, I told you you would love him. Um, this, that, that's <laughs> I did. I've been telling them all day because, I mean, you really you get it, you know, and not everybody gets it. And it's just it's wonderful for parents to know that there's somebody that understands them and that there is help out there because I think a lot of parents are really floundering. They're struggling. They're just... You know, they're just not getting ahead, and really, who's really suffering are the the kids and the siblings. So, you know, I opened by saying that you know you're a hero, and and you know I really meant it because That's you know it's not nice to your you work say. and the work of others. Like you know, I don't know if you know Dr. Thomas Armstrong. He's the author of Neurodiversity and Multiple mm-hmm. Intelligences. And you know, I would still be banging my head against the wall, and you know, causing a lot of stress for myself and you know my child. So. Um, you know, I, I can personally say that collaborative problem solving is amazing. It works, and yes, initially it's a lot of work. You have to change your mindset. You have to change the way that you, um, you know, you have to change the way that you look at your child. You have to change the way you look at yourself. But in the end, it's just incredible. So I personally thank you, um, not only for getting it, but for understanding our kids and for all you do to educate. Um, you know, the teachers and the administrators, and we really appreciate everything you do. Thank you so much for all those kind words. And thanks oh, for having and you me are on the also, program. Oh, you're welcome. And you're also on Blog Talk Radio. So let us just let the audience know when they can listen to you. He, um, Dr. Green has his own Blog Talk Radio. Well, there's three of them now. There's a web-based oh. radio program for parents, and that's at noon Eastern time every uh, Tuesday. And if you miss the live, if you if you're on the live program, you can always call in and ask questions. Um, if you miss the live program, all of the uh, programs are archived in recorded form on the Lives in the Balance website in the listening library section. I do a web-based radio program for educators every Monday at 3:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, among the various features of those two programs is the first Monday of every month we have a teachers, uh, an educators panel, where I'm joined by uh, four educators from throughout North America, and we just uh, chatted up about uh, how hard this is to implement in schools, but why we so desperately need to do it, and what it would look like if we do it. And the first Tuesday of every month, I have my parents panel, three moms and one. One dad who are at various points of uh, parenting challenging kids of various ages and various points in implementing collaborative problem solving, and we do the same thing. Um, And then a third radio program begins next week. It's only going to be once a month, and um, it's for people and staff and administrators and who, who work in restrictive therapeutic facilities, inpatient units, residential facilities, therapeutic group homes, and uh, juvenile detention facilities. And um, the whole goal of any of these radio programs is to provide people with an opportunity to call in, learn more, get their questions answered, get them the support that they need. Because I know that collaborative problem solving is hard, but um, as you've been saying, very worth it. And I want to make sure that it's as accessible and easy for people to use as possible. Well, absolutely, and I mean, between your, your books and your website and your blog talk radio, I mean, I really cannot encourage you, the audience, enough to um, just take a look, take a listen, because it will change your life. And I do want to apologize to the callers, um, to the audience. I know I, we were going to take calls, but um, Dr. Green has to leave. 
um, he puts his uh, daughter to sleep. How wonderful is that? Actually, it's going to be by telephone tonight because I'm sitting in Ontario and she's sitting in Boston. But that that ringing her that you heard was her calling me to find out um, if I was off yet. So I'm going to um, call her and say goodnight to her. And um, I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, anytime. And when you have your next edition come out, we'd love for you to come back. I'd be delighted. Thank you very much. Take care. As As I end the show every night... You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight at the Coffee Clutch.